0: Well, welcome to Sunday night here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. If you haven't been with us before, this is kind of our laid-back, just watch Jesus work. We're finishing up, we're in the last few weeks of our series called Simply the Savior that we started about a year and a half ago. This is uh, installment number 69 in the series. And tonight, Sending and Serving, if you turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, the first 17 verses here, and within this passage is contained one of the greatest of all the miracles that Jesus does in his time of ministry in the region of Galilee, the feeding of the 5,000. But it's interesting how the story builds, and that's really where it comes into play for us as the body of Christ, because the Lord is speaking to the disciples previous to this event. And in fact, he's going to empower them and send them out. He's going to give them a task, much like uh, our, our series this last couple of weeks in the morning on Sundays as we've seen this incredible mission that we're on and this ministry that we have. And so the Lord Jesus is really going to call together the 12 disciples, and I I want to remind you that the disciples were a unique group of people. We are called disciples, and we are in fact disciples. That word means one who's under the study or the tutelage of another, someone who's taught by someone else, and so anyone who's in that category of being taught, and so to be Christ's disciples, we're a follower of Jesus, or someone who learns about the Lord Jesus. But in this case, he's talking about the 12, the original 12, those that were around Jesus for the entire time of his ministry. These are the 12 men that spent their lives walking with Jesus around, especially the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so these are unique guys. There have not been an additional 12. Uh, There are no new 12. There were exactly 12. Uh, some of them uh, you'll often find called the apostles, but these guys are unique. And so don't confuse them with someone who's a simple follower because these 12 were the ones that the Lord, in essence, appointed and anointed and empowered Himself to go out and do ministry. And so, as the Lord begins here in verse 1 in this message, the loosely called sending and serving because he's going to send them and then he's going to show them one of the best ways that we know uh, to put ministry to practice and that's to serve other people so would you join me as we pray tonight and ask the lord's blessing father we're so grateful that we get to gather together and lord though we are disciples or these 12 men were unique these 12 ordinary men uh, that you assembled out of so many different paths of life. Lord, a, a tax collector, some fishermen, a doctor, the one who writes this particular account of this story, uh, a learned man hanging out with a bunch of people who really he didn't have a whole lot in common with. And so, Lord, many of us, diverse backgrounds, abilities, we pray that by your Spirit, you would speak and interpret, Lord, for us so that we can hear and understand and grow. Bless us as we study word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, it says, And he called his twelve disciples together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick and again it's important that we recognize that during that period of time while we as calvary chapel are not cessationists we believe the holy spirit is actively at work uh, here in our world today these were unique gifts that were suited for that time for a very specific purpose and so as the lord sends this group called the disciples out uh, they are empowered by the holy spirit with things that we see occasionally in our world, but in their world it was very normal. Uh, The Lord was empowering these men to be a powerful witness, to attest to the things that Jesus said very clearly, and so we often refer to these things that were done by Jesus and then by the disciples as the attesting miracles of Christ. And here's the reason why. If you're going to claim that you are the Son of God, If you are going to go so far as with the religious leadership of the Jewish church, the Pharisees, to equate yourself to I am, the same I am that Moses met with, then you probably are going to need to show people proof that that is true. And so Jesus himself healed people from all manner of disease. matter of fact, we're told he literally healed all who came to him. He also caused dead people to rise from the dead. The disciples would go on. They would carry on that tradition for a period of time. And they, too, would do some very amazing things. They also would heal people. They would cause people that would be incurable to be cured. They would cast out demons. And so the world then, a little different world than we live in today, and while we still see some of these activities around the globe They're not condensed as they were then. This was a time when these things were happening rapid fire and in succession. And so we don't look today as they did then for these types of things to occur on a daily basis, though they surely can, because the same Holy Spirit that was in them is still in us. And so God is capable uh, through us of doing these things. But they were a unique time in history. And so he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God, which was at that time a mystery. They they were still working out the details of understanding what the kingdom of God was all about. And though the Lord had already preached the the series that we know as the Beatitudes, and he's given this incredible sermon on the mount, and he's he's talked to them about kingdom living, he's shared many parables with them, these things are still unfolding. And so they get a special dose uh, a very intensive dose uh, that, was, that was needful for them at that time. The Lord has completed at this time two tours, if you will, of the region of Galilee, and specifically the northern Galilee. And so he's traveled all the way up uh, to Caesarea Philippi at the base of the Golan Heights. Uh, he's wandered down along the tributary of the Jordan, the Dan River. Uh, he's made it over to the coast. He's also made it all the way down to Beth Shion, the Decapolis, and these, these ten cities that were uh, set up by the Romans to, to provide for a, a government of that land. And so Jesus has made a tour in all these areas. And during that first tour, he travels alone with just four of the disciples. And so Peter, James, uh, John, and Andrew. And so they're, they're traveling around as a smaller group. On the second one, he's got all 12 of them with him. And so he's now going to again send the 12 out. And so these guys are the most learned of all of the disciples of the Lord. They would traveled as a group pretty much everywhere. They'd been with him. They'd sat with him. Uh, They had seen all of the things that the Lord had done. And so they're now prepared. They're ready to kind of strike out on their own. And so the Lord is pouring into these guys. It's so important for us as the body of Christ, to remember that one of the things we need to do to continue the ministry going forward is to pour into other people. We have that example in Jesus. Jesus poured into other people. It's one of the things that we have begun to do here in this church. We're pouring into a group of guys right now uh, that will be ordained as pastors in the very near future. We, We want to pass along the ministry, and as Jesus did that, so we should be pouring in Uh, And so Jesus kind of takes these guys and says, okay, it's time to leave the nest. He's going to give us a whole bunch of highlights as he speaks these things to them. And and Luke's going to record all of these little tiny snippets, these little tidbits, these pieces that we can draw uh, a point literally from all of the things that happened here. But he speaks to, to very specific little things. And the life that we live while we're on this earth is filled with all kinds of seemingly insignificant things, little things that have great meaning when they're in the hands of the master. When your life is fully turned over and when you're truly a disciple of the Lord, then he can use everything, the seemingly nondescript, the the inane, the, the little things that you would look at in your life and say, well, I'm just going down to the store to, you know, pick up some milk. The Lord can use a trip to the store to pick up milk. The, the Lord can use those one-on-one conversations as you're sitting there, you're having your nails done or your hair styled, or perhaps you're shopping for something in a, in a store. Be looking for the Lord to work in the small things in your life in big ways. He's been doing that since day one, and he continues to do that uh, to this day. It's time now for these disciples to go out. And so here's this third, this final Galilean tour. He's nearing the end of his public ministry. He's going to spend this last tour around the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to probe kind of into the littler or the smaller towns that are around the northern shore. And we believe that this particular tour will now take about a year. So he's going deep. And it's another important point for us to remember. The Lord starts big and broad. When you first get saved, the Lord deals with the big things in your life, right? You know, you may have something that God needs to set you free from. And the Lord deals with that big thing. But then as you grow in Christ, he starts to deal with the little things. Like your attitude. Like your thought process, like the stuff that you've stored up that you call knowledge or intellect that's actually very useless or maybe worse yet, harmful. The Lord begins to work in the small areas. And so he replaces your own human might with his might, is the first thing. And so as he calls them together, he, he gives them the power. Uh, these are uneducated guys. I, I mean, this is this is kind of like these are like the Honey Boo Boo brothers, you know. They they they're kind of wandering around. They they're they're just not the sharpest tools in the shed. You know, you you look. Hey, I'm going to call twelve guys. You know, you're going to have Tony Robbins come and speak to them. You know, you're gonna you're gonna have them. You know, they're going to be really powerful orators. They're going to have a great command of the Aramaic and the Greek language. They're going to be able to speak Latin to the Romans. You know, you would think. That, that the Lord would have picked out of all of humanity, everyone who was in that region of the world, he would have gone, maybe he would have gone to the synagogue and found the, you know, the smartest Pharisees and gathered them together. But the Lord, because he never wants us to trust in our own power, but always wants us to trust in the Holy Spirit in us, he picks seemingly, almost on purpose, the least qualified guys he can find. Guys that aren't even good fishermen. Remember what happened to them. They're actually failing at being fishermen. Now, now I can tell you, you know, when, when on your resume it says, I'm not a good fisherman, you're not going to be high on the list of, of, you know, candidates for the next position. And yet that's who the Lord has called. A dozen Galilean peasants, if you will. And apart from Dr. Luke and maybe Matthew, the tax collector, they're basically completely uneducated hicks from the sticks. They're they're wandering around like, okay, you tell us what to do, Lord. And here's the great thing about being that simple before the Lord. And I'm not suggesting that the Lord doesn't want us to be intelligent. We should be as intelligent as we possibly can. However God's gifted you in that area of life, be as great as you can. But the Lord doesn't need all of that. He can empower anyone at any time for any reason when we are simply yielded to the Spirit's work in our lives. And that's exactly what he does because we see it here. The might that these guys have was given to them notice what it says, and gave them the power and the authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He did not send them to school to learn how to do those things. He didn't all of a sudden make them more intelligent than they naturally were. They were given power. They were given authority. It came to them. It was a gift. And so God can do great things with people who aren't seemingly great by human standards. And that should be an encouragement to all of us. And that's not saying that anyone in here is, is like that. It's just, you, you don't have to be already prepared. You can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You can have little to offer, and the Lord can still do mighty things through you. And so you should be encouraged. I've seen so often in the mission field, the Lord use people that you would think it's like you're not sending that guy, that woman. You They're not putting them into the ministry, Lord. And all of a sudden you find out that they're exactly the right person. And people are coming to Jesus in the droves. You see, these guys desperately needed the enabling if they're going to march boldly into some city and proclaim the gospel because they weren't going to do that. In this group is Doubting Thomas. You know, the guy that's going to walk into tr- Well, he's going to stutter. He's going to stumble. But with the power of God upon him and in him and through him, he's going to preach boldly the things of Christ. And so remember where your might comes from. The second thing that we see is the message that they have. The message is Christ's message. It's not their message. They didn't concoct this message. One of the things that's always somewhat embarrassing for for us who have the opportunity, the, the blessed privilege to teach God's word, that's His word. If I were to simply stand up here and actually read it, it's still going to bear forth fruit because this is the power of God unto salvation to them who believe. It's God's authority that speaks forth from these pages, it's not something that I had to make up. And so, notice the message. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. You you see, they were going to relieve some suffering. And there's a wonderful, a beautiful mix here. Because very often, when you see the church, it usually has one of these two things right. And we need to get both things right. There's a great place we must and can do no other thing than to preach the actual gospel, the kingdom of God. We must do that. That's our mission. But can I tell you one of the greatest ways to open the door so that can happen is to love and serve people, to heal them, to take care of their needs, to touch the downcast, the the people who've been trodden on by society, the ones who the least among us, When you touch them, you're doing something that no one can accuse you of doing for profit or gain. You're doing it because it is truly one of the most powerful extensions of the hand of the Lord. So the message doesn't make any human sense. It only makes sense because of the Lord working in us. Nobody's going to choose to go plant a church at 42nd and Avalon if you're in it for the money if you're in it for the glory, if you're in it to build a big old huge building, if you're in it for any other reason than you have been called to preach the gospel and touch the needy, you're not going there. But if your heart's pure about the message, guess what? You get to heal the sick, you get to feed the hungry, and you get to preach the gospel. And that makes Jesus smile. And so he prepares them with this message. A third thing that we can see in this was was the matter of their money. And this is a neat opportunity for us to glean a little bit from, from I think, something that's, that's near to the heart of the Lord. One of the things that I think people in our world look at is when there's any type of hypocrisy, when we say, you know, here, here's here's how we view the finances that God's entrusted to us, but we then do not live that way ourselves. When there's a disconnect between reality and how other people live, and when you see those, you know, multi-millionaire pastors flying around their own private jets and you gigantic mansions and, you know, they're wearing hunks of rock on their fingers on three or four of them at a time, and they're wearing suits that cost more than my whole wardrobe because I, I shop at Costco. I'm cheap. I admit it. It's just the way I, it's the way I roll. I have some of your clothes from the thrift store too. <laughs> Me and Kevin were doing a fashion show. Power on, brother. No, my, you know, it, it's, we need to recognize, and family, this is, this is so good for us to talk about these things. We need to recognize that people are watching. They're looking at us. They're seeing if what we say, we actually do ourselves. And the first excuse they will use for not listening to a word that we say is if we're hypocritical. We say one thing and do another. Immediately, the whole message, everything that you say, can be thrown out the window when there's that hypocrisy. And one of the places, especially in our world, that that happens the fastest is in this area. And so Jesus speaks to them about their money. In other words, their finance. They didn't, you know, they didn't walk around with an ATM card. You know, they, didn't, they couldn't take out their smartphone like we can and take a picture of their paycheck and deposit it into their bank account and then swipe their ATM card or use Apple Pay or whatever. They, they couldn't do any of that. And generally, people had very few possessions that they could say were their own. But the things that they did have, and they were actually protected under the Mosaic law, was their tunic, their basic garment. And in fact, it was so protected that you couldn't take it In a legal case, it was protected because it was literally considered the person's life. They'd die without it. And so you were supposed to have one. But if you had the two tunics, sometimes people would wear two, or the cloak, the outer garment, Jesus speaks to that second tunic. He says, look, I I want you to do exactly what Paul would write to Timothy I want you to be moderate in all things. Because you really, look, we live in the Middle East. It doesn't get that cold most of the time, unless you're up on Mount Hermon. You know, you're not going to freeze to death. And so he says to them take nothing for the journey, neither staves. That would be something to defend yourself with against wild animals, or to perhaps be used to even help you along your way. You can travel faster without them, by the way, nor a bag. Nothing that you could carry anything in... In other words, if you were along the way and and you were gleaning maybe in the field and you stuck a few extra grains of barley in there or perhaps someone was there and they shared a meal which was normal oriental hospitality in the Middle East if you came by someone's house and they were cooking bread and you were a sojourner they would give of their own abundance to you to be hospitable. They didn't even take a bag so they could carry anything. Now, understand what the tunic was. We'd call it a gunny sack with arms. It was just a bag, basically, with a hole cut in the top for your head to pop through, and usually had short sleeves. You had a really nice one. It had some longer sleeves, but they were so valuable. Do you remember that the Romans actually fought over Jesus's? They cast dice. Let's cast lots for his garments. And so much so that if you had one that was sown in one piece, a single piece, it was even more valuable. This was an important thing to them. And so the Lord reminded them, look, don't take anything on your journey. You want to travel light. And the message for us in this world, brothers and sisters, is travel light. Travel light in the way that you handle your finances. Because be sure of this, as Jesus said, you brought nothing into this world, you surely will take nothing out of it. It's all staying here. So store up your treasures in heaven where the moths, the rust cannot get to them, where thieves can't break in and steal. And so he says, take nothing for your journey, not a staff nor a bag nor bread. You see, bread could last a while. You could take some of that with you. You could actually go a few days with some bread, nor money. Don't take any money with you. And do not have two tunics apiece. He says, look, I want you to trust me. I want you to live by faith. And so he says, here's how we're going to do this. You're not going to take the things that normal people would travel when they travel. I'm going to give you what you need day by day. And the Lord's teaching them a lesson. Now, let me be very careful here. The Lord's not saying it's wrong to have a savings account, the Lord's not saying it's wrong to have investments. God bless you if you have a motorhome. If you got that, it's not saying that at all. It's simply saying that those things can weigh us down, those things can attach us to this world. And so if those things control you, you need to really concern yourself with whether God wants you to have them or not. If those things are a tool in his hands so that he can use them for his glory, and even if that's to make sure that you're sane because you you know, get away every once in a while, nothing wrong with any of those things. But be careful. Because what can happen is you start serving the stuff and so Jesus says, look, you let me take care of your day-to-day living. Don't concern yourself with those things. Live a simple life and rejoice. Heaven sent hospitality, the glorious understanding of the true value of things. Isn't it weird? Uh, now I don't know how many of you have done this, but I'll challenge you to do it. Go in your closet and look at what's in there, and ask yourself a simple question. When was the last time I wore this? And here's what happens in our Western world. Well, you know, I might wear it sometime. I could use that someday. It cost a lot of money. It was a gift from so-and-so. You see how easy it is to get attached to stuff? You wouldn't miss it if it was gone. If somebody came in and you didn't know that they'd been in your closet, they'd cleaned all those things out, chances are you probably wouldn't even know they were gone. Now, I'm not saying you should throw all your stuff in a bag and take it to, you know, the thrift store. But I'd appreciate it. No. Uh, all I'm saying is, is you, you can become so attached to stuff, That everything has that kind of... He's like, well, no, I don't want to give that up. And before you know it, you end up doing exactly what Solomon did. I'll build a bigger barn. Because I can't stick all my stuff in this little barn. And what happened during that day and time? this is so cool. I I had a, a friend who served in the Sudan for quite some time. And he came back from one of the trips to the Sudan... And he shared with me, he says, you know, I had an interesting conversation with a, with a family that was living in a tuple hut. And if you've ever seen the huts that are in much of Africa, they're mud brick walls. They're, they kind of put down mud bricks and then they coat those mud bricks with some straw. And then they put some more mud on the outside of the bricks. They're normally around. They have a thatched roof. That's a tuple hut. And he says he was having a conversation with this guy that was living in there with his family of six. He said, we actually pity you Americans. He said, because you don't own anything. I own that mud hut. There's no mortgage on it. I own the rocks that are in there for the firing. I own the firewood that's on the floor. I own the food that's inside of it. And I am indebted to no one. This is a Christian man, by the way. And I think he had it right. He was not under bondage to stuff. So be careful. Be careful. And so the Lord says, look, don't take anything with you on your way. You're not going to need it. I'm going to take care of you because it's his job to be Jehovah Jireh, right? He's our provider. This is guys. Can I speak to you for a second? You wives plug your ears. No, it's all right. You can listen and you can beat your husband up later. No, I'm just kidding. We're prone to think that we take care of our families We're prone to think that way now let me be very careful you do need to go to work okay you you need to make sure that you're you're doing your part you need to put yourself in that place to where god is likely to bless you but make no mistake you don't take care of your family god does because everything you have is actually his he's only given it to you on loan and you're supposed to be a steward of it that's what the bible says It actually doesn't belong to you. It's still his. And so it will set you free if you recognize that and say, look, I'm doing my best to be a good steward of the things that God's entrusted to me. That's the reason, one of them, that Jesus said, to him who is given much, much will be required. You, You see, when he gives us much, he expects much. So if you don't want the burden of having much expected of you, be careful what you ask for. Because a lot of people have gone that way. For the love of money is the root. Not money itself. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And for it, money, men, many of them have pierced themselves through with much sorrow. And so Jesus says, be careful on this issue of money. The second thing, the third thing, the fourth thing. It was a matter of the methods that they would use. Whatever house you enter in, verse 4 says, stay there. And from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake the very dust of your feet off as a testimony against them. He said, look, you, you need to be productive. You need to be powerful. But you need to preach and then move. You know, sometimes we get so hung up trying to convince people of the gospel that we forget that the enemy can substantially waste our time with people who have no intention of hearing what you have to say. And let me give you a couple of examples. Mormon missionaries. Jehovah's Witness, when they come to your door, they're going to walk up and hand you a watchtower tract, and I'm telling you, I have spoken to literally hundreds of them and I have yet to convince one of them that the Bible they hold in their hands is an inaccurate translation because the men who translated it did not have any degrees of any kind in Near Eastern languages and they are the only ones on the entire face of the earth that use that translation because it's not actually a translation, it's an aberration. And I know these things. I can go chapter and verse with them, but I've yet to convince one. So it's a waste of my time. And so here's what I do I'm a Bible believing Christian pastor. And so if you want to talk to me about the real Jesus, I'd be happy to do that. If you want to share the Watchtower Society, I'm not interested. Go on your way. I got better things to do with my time. Do you want to talk about the real Jesus? Let's talk about the real Jesus. It's a kind of way of shaking the dust off your feet. Be loving, be kind, but don't waste your time. God's only giving you X number of seconds in a day, right? Make good use of them. Don't sit around and get sidetracked. And so Jesus says in verses four and five look, if they don't receive you, if they don't want to hear the message, look, there's a real Jesus. And there's a real gospel. And there's only one Jesus. Asked Robin, who were talking between second and third service, and he we actually went on uh, Catholic.org and he looked up because someone had asked him. that was a Catholic about the Mormon Church, and the, you know what? The Catholic Church is spot on with their understanding of, of Mormon doctrine. They absolutely say it's a cult. And I said, right on. So you can discuss that with somebody who's one of your Catholic brothers and sisters. But if you discuss that with, a, with somebody who's a Mormon, they're going, no, no, we believe in the real Jesus. And then you get in a long, drawn-out conversation to try and tell them about the real Jesus. But if they don't receive you, if they're not going to change, if there's not going to be any movement towards the real Jesus, stop wasting your time. Move on. Jesus encouraged the disciples, shake the dust off your feet, Get going. Find some place to do some good for the kingdom. The next thing we see, verse 6, is a matter of the way that they would move or their movement. How they did that. And so they departed and they went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Look at that word. Time is short. If it was short then, can you imagine how short it is now? They're going through the region of Galilee. The northern shore of Galilee they're going through these little towns and Jesus's hometown would have been Capernaum and Tabitha and Magdala down to Tiberias along the shore of the Sea of Galilee he would have transited down the Jordan Valley past Jericho and making his way along these towns that were in the region of the Jordan Valley and 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 look, time was short. And so he preaches the gospel and he moves on. They kept going. Keep going, family of God. Keep moving. Don't don't get stuck. So often we get stuck. And I've talked to so many people in this church. Hear us. That they're like they're going after this one person at work. Now, pray for that one person constantly and continually. But you got to economize your time. If you spent days and weeks and months and they're still not budging, go find somebody else. Keep praying for that person. Sick the hounds of heaven on them, amen? (laughs) Let the Holy Spirit do some pounding, some tendering. The Holy Spirit's really good at that, by the way. Kind of like taking the mallet out, bam, 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 bam. Making that meat a little softer. But do some moving. Find somebody that you can invest in. And Jesus actually says this somewhat tersely. He, he kind of summarizes. He says, look, go through the towns, preach the gospel. And Luke just kind of encapsulates it. He says, move. Get moving. And so in that, what happens is, is the news of all this reaches Herod Antipas. And he knows know, Herod was a tetrarch. That means a uh, a quarter ruler and so he's hes this is Herod Antipas and Herod Antipas uh, one of the Herod's sons is the ruler of the land and you remember that he's actually the one that was responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist and he's heard of this and, and to him this is kind of like this is pretty cool news you know not a lot that goes on in the region of Galilee and there's these people wandering around healing people and so he's in for a good miracle and so he kind of wants to see him so verse 7 And now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was done by him, by Jesus. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John, that would be John the Baptist, had risen from the dead. Now he was pretty sure that the dude was dead. John had been sent off to that in modern-day Jordan over in the hills of Edom, this hilltop fortress, much like Masada on the opposite side of the Jordan Valley. And so John's been dead and he goes on to say, and some that Elijah had appeared and by others, one of the old prophets had risen again. So he's kind of into the whole mystical thing. It's like, man, this could be, this could be big news. You know, not a lot happens out here in the middle of nowhere. And so I think I might have myself, a, you know, a prophet pop back on the scene. And so Herod said, John, I've beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And so he sought him. Now it's interesting to me. There, there are usually two basic reasons that people want to talk to Christians. One is they're genuinely seeking the Lord. In other words, they want to. They're, they're like, man, their hearts open and they're inquiring. The other is, I want to go to this weird healing festival with Benny Hinn, and they're gonna, you know, they just got to go. And it's like, you know, the dude slays people in the spirit. It's, it's entertainment. Herod Antipas is in the second of these categories. He's looking for some evening entertainment. It's like this could be a problem, you know, this could be great. We can have some beers. We can watch some healings. We can have some folks come by. We can call a little group together. We can have Jesus come over. That's where Herod's at. He's not genuinely seeking the gospel message. He is not interested in a relationship with the true and the living God. He's interested that there's a bunch of strange things happening and he'd like to see them be careful again make sure that when you're talking to people about the things of the lord that they really want to hear that they're not just amazed now bring them to church and and of course impart truth to their lives but when you find out they're just playing around they're just messing with you preach the gospel and keep moving Give them the real deal. Make sure they understand who Jesus is. He couldn't admit that Christ had come, but he could not deny either that someone had come. And so when you think about it, he's like, he's kind of like stuck in the middle. There's something going on. I don't know what it is. To me, it's just entertainment. And you have to remember, this guy was a paranoid delusional. You He might have been schizophrenic for all I know. But, but he is concerned that this prophet has come back. He's like, man, this is a bad situation to begin with. And so he's kind, of, he's kind of watching after himself. And verse 7 really gives us this picture. He's perplexed. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to think. He couldn't deny that things were going on, but he had no idea what those things were. One thing he absolutely did know is he wanted to see anybody that was doing miracles, Jesus didn't really play into that game. He he, he wasn't going to concern himself because he had real work to do. You want to be careful. I've had a lot of people come to me and they're going, well, you know, I think I want to go see this guy and that guy and this teacher and that teacher and I want to go to, you know, this thing over here with the next great, you know, move of the spirit. They have fairy dust that blows from the ceilings or something. So I, you know, want to go see that. People are looking for experiences. Make sure that you're spending your time showing them Jesus, not an experience. Verse 10, he says, And the apostles, when they had returned, so they've gone out, they've come back, they're speaking to Jesus, told him all that they had done, and then he took them and went aside privately to a deserted place belonging to a city called Bethsaida. Now, when you look at the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, there are actually two places that are called Bethsaida. One of them is Tabtha. That's the, the home now of the, the little church there of the loaves and fishes. And there's an additional Bethsaida that's on the opposite side of the inlet of the Jordan River into the northern Sea of Galilee. Now, to me, the likelihood of the place that is currently claimed by the Catholic Church, actually being the spot that Jesus did these things, seemingly is in question to me personally because it says it's a deserted place. That would not have been a deserted place. It's very near Capernaum, it's in the prime fishing grounds. But on the opposite side, away from the mouth of the Jordan River, which would have to be crossed in time of storms, there is another place, and it begins to become more deserted as you travel around onto the eastern shore doesn't really matter. There were two Bethsaidas, whether it was Bethsaida Julius or whether it was Tabitha that we know today. Uh, nonetheless, they, they kind of go away on a little bit of a vacation. And we see this in that they went privately to a deserted place. And so they're they're trying to get away from the, the, the grueling ministry that they've been under. And it gives us a couple of things again to think on. One is we are human beings. We cannot continue indefinitely with the schedule that uh, is is very demanding at times because the message that we share is life and death and so there's a place and a time for us to get away and to go to the other shore to go to that place where we can get away and spend some time privately with the lord and so the disciples are doing that but he's going to teach them a message and they're not going to be there for very very long and we'll pick that up in verse 11. And so as Jesus now begins to set this table after they go on this little uh, disciples' getaway, this little vacation, if you will, verse 11 goes on to remind us of these things. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. People always figure out where you're at. Now in our age of Instagram, uh, you know, it's like everybody knows, they know where your dog is having breakfast. You know, I I was sitting there looking at my Instagram thing. Yes, I'm on there. Uh, and you can follow me, it's Jeff Gill, CCSB, uh, if you want. I may, un, you know, I may unfollow you or whatever, but no, not really. But, but you know, we're, we're kind of in those, in, in that time, in, in our day and time, to where people's lives are radically interconnected. I mean, just almost at an insane level. You know, our news is instantaneous. You know, something happens on the other side of the earth and we find out about it like that. Here it was word of mouth. And so what happens is the disciples have taken off. They've gone on this little mini retreat on this vacation. And no matter which of the two Bethsaidas they went to, they're roughly equal distance from Capernaum. So a couple of miles either way is about all they are. And so everybody's well, like, where Jesus and the disciples go? Well, I saw them walking across that way. They went on the other side of the Jordan River. They're over there trying to, well, let's go see what they're doing. The multitudes knew it almost instantaneously because he was big news. When God's people are doing God's things, God's way, it's big news. And people come to find out what's happening. And so the multitudes knew it and it was real. They would not have followed Jesus if it wasn't real. This is another one of those authenticating facts about the gospel record The fact that the disciples tell these stories, but they tell them in such a way as if people would have gone, it's like, wow, what was this Jesus dude doing? Well, he's doing exactly what the Bible said he was doing. He was healing people, blind people were seeing, and lame people were walking, and people with disease and demons were being cast out. And so they're like, man, wherever he's going, we're going to go find out what he's going to do next. And all the while he's preaching the kingdom. And every time he'd do one of these miracles, he'd go, and the kingdom of God is like... And then he'd use that as an example. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see Jesus going somewhere with Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead? That actually happened. Is that not Lazarus, whom was dead? And so this whole program that's going on has now traveled Multitudes knew it, they followed him, verse 11 says, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. Notice Jesus didn't say, hey, uh, can you come back later? We're on a retreat. (laughs) Confession time. I've said those very words. I've been on a retreat, and I've had people come ask me about ministry stuff, and I've actually said, I'm on a retreat right now. I've had to go apologize. Jesus doesn't do that. Our time is his time. Now, you can pray that the Lord sends you far enough away that people can't find you. (laughs) I always encourage that. you You really want to get away. But remember, the Lord wants to use you wherever you are. And so Jesus, even though he went away with the guys and he's wanting to be with them, it was a purposeful thing. When people needed healing, he healed them. When people need counsel, he counseled them. When people need a word, he gave the word to them. When they needed to have wisdom in part of their life, he gave them the wisdom. There's a lot we can learn from being available. And remember, the Lord will never give you more than you are able to bear sometimes we think we can't bear anymore and connie and i have this conversation all the time we are human beings and we do have limitations that are not in the category of the divine but i think sometimes the pressure i know for me the pressure that that is on me very often is my own pressure i put that pressure on myself and so when i leave it in the lord's hands he gives me what i can really handle and when the day began to wear away the 12 came and said Send the multitude away. I've always tried to figure out how they actually would have said that to Jesus. Look, we're dying here. Can you send, we're sick and tired of you healing people. Can you stop doing that? No more casting out demons. We are exhausted. Please quit. I, I don't know what they would have said, but we get the general gist send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns in the country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. Look, there is no bonds down the street. Messiah? What are we going to do? Isn't it crazy how quickly we can fail to see the goodness of the Lord, the magnificence of the Lord, His power, His awesome abilities, and he he's actually at times put us in positions where we have nothing with which to work because he wants to show us his power? And we say, well, I really don't want that. I mean, come on. I mean, I don't want to see any miracles around me. That's basically what they're saying here. Look, we're in a deserted place. Just send them away. But he said to them, and I love this, okay, wise guys, okay, brilliant ones, O oh, mighty, powerful disciples who've just returned from this journey where you've cast out demons, Oz, oh, the great and powerful, you give them something to eat. You see, because Jesus did want to feed them, He wanted to minister to their need. And so He tells them, Well, I would give them something to eat. You want me to send them away? You feed them. You give them something. And they said, But we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all these people. Now, I want you to understand where this is. The northern shore of the Sea of Galilee at the time, there probably wasn't a town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee that had more than a thousand people in it. They were tiny little fishing villages for the most part. Each one of them had a synagogue. You can go there today. You travel with us to Israel. You'll see those synagogues. You'll see the one that Jesus, two of them that Jesus taught in most frequently, Magdala and, and Capernaum. But they were small little villages. And we're going to find out there's 5,000 people. And when they use those terms in the Bible, when they say people, that means men. Because they did not count they don't blame it on me. I'm not being sexist or misogynist. They just, that's simply how they kept track during that day and time. So there was likely 10,000 people or more because they also would have had children with them. So this is a huge crowd. This is the staple Center has followed Jesus. That's what's going on here. This is a big crowd. They're in a little tiny town in the middle of nowhere that does not have the Oro-wheat bakery in it. There's no place to go get a bunch of loaves of bread. The next largest town that they could have gone to that might have had the capacity to feed a crowd of this size would have been Tiberius, halfway around on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. A two-day walk. And so he's saying, go get them something to eat. For there were about 5,000 men. And then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And I I love this because our God is a God of order. And I think he did this for several reasons. One of them was to make them count them. I think it's one of the hidden reasons here. It's like, Okay, we'll have them sit down in groups of 50. I'm just going to blow them out of the water because they're actually going to get the number. And we don't know whether it was 5,812. We, we don't know, but we know this. Jesus is saying, put them in groups of 50. And make them sit down. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up to heaven, and he blessed it, and he broke it. And he gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. Now, you can imagine what's going through the disciples' mind as they're sitting there thinking. He just had them sit down in groups of 50. They have, I I don't know what he gave each one, we're not told, but they started with pretty meager slim pickings, five loaves and two fish. So let's say they were normal barley loaves, maybe enough for three or four or five people at the very, very most. And a couple of fish, if they came out of the Sea of Galilee, they were likely the same types of fish that are in there today, maybe tilapia, but they they were certainly not, you know, big giant swordfish or something. They weren't, you know, it wasn't like a mahi-mahi or, you know, it was a tiny little fish. And he begins to, to bless it. And here's the awesome thing. Nothing in the hands of the Lord is sufficient. In other words, if he has nothing to work with, he doesn't need anything to work with. Whatever he needs, he can make. He can create. Whatever you have need of, and my God shall supply, will supply, does supply, always does supply all of our needs according to his riches and his glory in Christ Jesus. You see, he's teaching them a lesson. We're, We're here these people have come. They need to be ministered to. That's not on your heart, but it sure is on my heart. And if we don't have anything, that's okay. I'm the God that can take care of all of your needs. And so he begins to break the bread, and he begins to pass it out. And, and you can imagine them, and I think this is the, one of the other hidden things. Can you imagine each one of the disciples, and you can do some simple math and divide all these things up. They're, they're going to have to go to a lot of different groups each. So here's Peter. He gets his broken part of a loaf, and he goes it over to this group of fifty. He starts, and they start breaking it and handing it out. And then he goes back, and somehow mysteriously, the Lord's got another half of a loaf. Then he goes over to another group of fifty, and, and he gives it to that group. They start breaking, and all the while, is looking. Well, that group of fifty is still breaking. There's too weight. I'm going to go back over here, and he gets another. And he goes over here, and he breaks another and gives it back. And so each time these guys are going back and forth to Jesus and out of the abundance of who Jesus is, the supply is met and it's unending and they just go back and forth and back and forth. And and all of a sudden they're looking and here they've each one ministered to these groups of 50. And all of a sudden, every last one of them, they're over there noshing away, munching on stuff. And the guy's got fish bones hanging out of his mouth and the disciples go, I got another group. And they go back over and and before you, they're scattered all over this hillside speaking to this issue, and they're learning a lesson that whatever the Lord needs to do, the Lord is able to do. Amen. Amen? And so, what happens is, as they learn this lesson, they're going to actually see that not only was he not short on what he needed, they had more than they needed. And he says to them, and so they ate and they were filled. I love that part. They didn't get like a little tiny crumb, a little morsel off the corner of a barley loaf. The original language is here they were stuffed. They were stuffed. They sat down. We took our son Austin out to dinner last night, and and we went to a steakhouse that I wouldn't encourage you to go to all the time, but it was his birthday. He moved to the desert. He moved to Gehenna, actually, and and so we we figured the least we could do was take him to a nice restaurant, so we took him for his birthday, and, and we ate. You know that feeling like you look at your plate, and it's like, that is the devil in that meat right there. If that goes in my stomach, it was really good the first couple of, you know, pieces, and now you're down to where it's like, Oh, I'm gonna die if I eat the rest of this. You know that feeling? That's what the people had. They were stuffed, they were filled. They're like, oh, please, Peter, no more fish. Bring no more bread to our group. If you bring any more, we're gonna hit you with the bread. They were filled as they ate, and they all ate. And I love that word all there because it's inclusive of everybody, not just the men mentioned originally, but everyone, the women, the children, anyone who wanted to eat. Come and eat freely of the goodness of the Lord. And 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. I love that. One for each disciple. They're all going we were going to go down to the Circle K and get some <laughs> microwave burritos and we have whole baskets full. And Peter's sitting there eating out of his basket. And James and John's munching away out of his basket. And you can imagine as they're turning their attention to the thought process of what Jesus said about the vine bearing fruit and my goal is not that you would just pop out a grape, but that you would bear fruit, much fruit, more fruits, abundant fruit, and that fruit would remain. You see, all of those people, they got a gospel message in the, in the provision of the goodness of the Lord. And the disciples got a provisional message. Look, I told you don't take anything because you don't need it. If I send you somewhere, you can trust me. It's an incredible picture of our lives before the Lord. You see, that vacation was short-lived out there in the desert. We're not sure what they were doing, but we know this, what the disciples saw as, you know, basically lousy work. The master turned into sanctified service. Nothing in the hands of the Lord used for his kingdom goes to waste. And so he does what we could never do. You see, the disciples were kind of looking at it almost from a a socialist view, you know. They're like, well, you know, we got X number of loaves, and we divided it up equally. That equals nothing per person. (laughs) Just saying, don't know why our government can't think that way, but it seems pretty (laughs) simple to me. We start with nothing. We divide it up a bunch of times and equals less than what we had to start with. So he turns to the working class and says, Okay, you go guys buy some groceries. <laughs> you can see a whole group. You can see the underprivileged, the industrialists, the capitalists, the, the bourgeois, you know, kind of the, the one sitting, no, I'll never do that, you know. Kind of thing. But Jesus saw people. Jesus saw need. Jesus saw people, and he saw need. He saw people that needed him and he met their needs. You can almost see the disciples sitting over there. They're probably whispering to each other, the sun has baked his brain. He's got heat stroke. We don't know what he was saying. But you can almost imagine what they were thinking. And yet the Lord just takes complete control. Just look, sit down in your groups of 50s. And so as you see this come to a conclusion, Jesus started... First, with what they had. Look, that's how the Lord works in every one of our lives. He just starts with you. He loves you. He loves us. He starts with what we got, and he works with that. And he can do mighty things with what we already have, what we already are, and what we don't have, he can give. Because Jesus is the the producer. We're just distributors. All we can do is give out what we've been given, right? That's all it is. The only thing you can do, we can do, the church can do, is give out what we've been freely given. That's all we can do. At the end of the day, we really don't make anything. We think we do. But it really all came from the Lord. So he's just taking what he's got and saying, here, have some of it. For us, we're freaking out because we don't have it and we can't make it. So we need to remember that we're just distributors of the things of the Lord. And God wants to minister to people's needs. And so he will fill that need by using whatever he needs to to accomplish that goal. Don't get caught in the trap of limiting God by what you already see in your basket. Don't do it. Believe in a big God for big things. Because what he wants to do is give you baskets full. And that's what he will do. You believe that he can take your empty basket and fill it? I'm asking you a question. Do you believe that? Because he can. You may have nothing in your basket right now. He's able. And you'll have abundance. It's crazy. One of the joyous things Connie and I get to to do sometimes, we just sit around in the morning, we'll have a cup of coffee, and just think about all the insane things that the Lord has done in our lives. And if you'd have sat down to map out where we've been, what we've done, and I, I don't mean that in the prideful sense, just being the recipients of the blessings of the Lord, all the things he's allowed us to be a part of, there is no way on this earth that it should have ever happened. It's because he takes empty baskets and fills them. He overflows them. He does unimaginable things with empty baskets. Let him do that with you. The cross was and is the miracle of our provision. All that we have, we have because of what he did at Calvary's Cross. He showed us he loves us. He gave us abundant life for our deadness. He took the death that we had. Remember, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he's given us new life. And that life is an abundant life, a basket filled life. Amen? Run a little bit long. We're going to pray. Going to dismiss you guys. I'm let you head over and pack some backpacks. Well, would you stand and let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for this amazing congregation, Lord, these blessed saints. And Lord, pray that they are encouraged to look at the baskets in their own life as just an opportunity for you to fill them. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work by the power of your spirit to do great things with the little things that we have, God, we thank you for the widow's mites. We thank you for the loaves of bread. We thank you for the two fish. Uh, we thank you for the the things that you've already given us, and we just pray, Lord, that what we have, we'd hold on to loosely, and that you do mighty miracles in our midst. Lord, you you just simply work in us to accomplish, to will, and to do your good pleasure. And so, God, we ask that you would do these things not for our sake, but for your glory. And so we commit our way unto you. We look forward, Lord, to that the time when we get to sit on a hillside and go from you to people and see their baskets filled to overflowing. God, use us to be the hands of love that accomplish much in this amazing world that you have created in love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.